Hello, this is Chris Hewitt. This Empire podcast, including a discussion of The Dark Knight Rises and an interview with its director, Christopher Nolan, was recorded before the shocking, sickening and senseless attack on cinema goers in Aurora, Denver. Our hearts and thoughts go out to the victims and their families. On the Empire Podcast this week, we're all about the... <coughs> On the Empire Podcast this week, we're all about the Batman as the Dark Knight returns in The Dark Knight Rises. We have a spoiler-free review, plus an exclusive chat with Chris Nolan. Plus, Ice-T drops in for a chat, and we have enough movie news and general nonsense to fill the Batcave three times over. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and after our little daily podcast detour at Comic-Con, normal service has resumed. Regular listeners may be pleased to know, or may not give to hoots actually that I finally got my Galactus while out in San Diego all 19 inches of him and he is beautiful this week my Empire Pod Heralds are comprised of Helen O'Hara who never saw a Galactus she didn't like Ollie Richards who's one of the aforementioned people who couldn't give two hoots about Galactus and James Dyer who as the editor of Empire Online is just as powerful as Galactus and is certainly just as terrifying watching him meet welcome all how are you well, I think. Yeah, yes, I'm yeah, not good. sure which order we go in. Good, I give genuinely absolutely no hoots whatsoever about no, you Galactus. Don't. What is Galactus? Uh, he's that big purple thing. Well, at least you know something yeah. about or it. Or Cloud. Or Cloud, in or fact, cl- if you're watching. We're going to ignore that. Mm. He's the big purple thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, James, you, you he has a good line in headwear. Mm. Yeah, you, yeah, he does. I rock that outfit. And <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, now, before we hear properly from all three of them, I hunger, just like Galactus. No. But unlike Galactus, not for worlds. Instead, I hunger for your tweets and your emails. Let's start with at Caleb Shanks, who says, I have a big old voice crush on Helen. Oh, what That's a nice, nice man. It? What a nice man. If you could pick a person to narrate your life. <laughs> Did the levels just go mad there? Mad. What a nice man. I'll get back there. If you could pick a person to narrate your life, who would it be? James L. Jones. Oh, that's a good choice. Uh-huh. That's a good choice. And if he was ill, Brian Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, your life would be really loud. Yeah. Well, one brings gravitas and the other one could, you know, it's Brian Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> so, they're two slightly different people there. It's, it's yes, interesting. They but they're yeah. great voices. They Only who would, who would you Will Arnett. Oh, he's a good one. He's a very good one. Nice, deep, gravelly voice. Helen. Rob Swanson. You wouldn't narrate your own voice? I wouldn't, no. Your own voice? You wouldn't, you wouldn't narrate your own narrate voice? Your, voice. <laughs> your own knife? No, that would be immodest of me. <laughs> that said, after watching Ted, I think Patrick Stewart would also be an excellent choice for that, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. Indeed. So you, you're saying Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation? I am, yes. Or, right. or his his real-life alter ego, if you if you prefer. But yes, Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman, is indeed. His, is his name. Uh, I would go for people with, with great voices over here. Uh, Matt Berry. Uh, you know, from Garth Marenghi in the IT crowd oh, okay, yeah. uh, Sarah Vinovich Peter Sarah Vinovich wow. has, got, has got a great uh, a great voice and uh, of course Dana Carvey as Pistachio Disguisey because he is the master of disguise and he could do anyone you ask for really That's so not it could be really James Earl Jones disguise works is it it is you could disguise your voice right I am the master of disguise that's what he says uh, thanks for that Caleb Shanks at Ted209 good name Response to a point that we made in the most recent podcast proper where we wondered if we ever see Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne wearing the bat suit without the mask and he says in The Dark Knight he's in a suit without a cowl after Rachel's death spoiler warning uh, but everyone knows everyone's seen it by it's now it's been four years it has been four years and also as someone else pointed out on email sorry I don't have your name uh, in Batman Begins Bruce takes his mask off after saving Rachel from Scarecrow so clearly he has a thing about 
Rachel, where he actually allows her so much into this world that he can be Bruce Wayne while wearing the Batman uniform, which he doesn't do with anyone else. I think he does with um, Alfred. Alfred, mm. that's the one. Well, he does in this he one, does doesn't he? In, in Dark Knight yeah. Rises. I think he has seen. before as well. I don't, no, I don't think that's a I actually thought, interestingly, since we saw this morning, I thought it was actually quite a striking image when you see him walking without the mask on but with the suit on in Dark Knight mm. Rises. It was, it was surprising. I very much liked it. I'm pretty sure that it happens in the previous ones as well. That when with, he's with in Alfred. the Batcave, yeah. Yeah, Alfred doesn't count. It's too late, he's seen everything. Yeah, precisely. Okay, so that's that cleared up. At Dowie81, who we hope is blessed with bounce back ability, that's a football reference. Uh, says, I forgot Christopher Lee was in Gremlins 2. This must be a response to our Sack Gallican podcast. Uh, are there any films you've watched back and been shocked to see an actor in it? Now, I've got a recent example. I watched Groundhog Day recently, and it is Michael Shannon. I believe it's Michael Shannon's first film. He shows up near the end as uh, one of the young bucks. He's getting married, and Phil Connors helps him eventually find love at the end of the film and he plays a really really nice guy not the sort of psychopathic murderer that he's he's warped into over the last few years uh, I was watching um, The Dark Knight again the other day because I'm very uh, thorough in my research when watching the <laughs> films and Joffrey from Game of Thrones is in there yes, as he the is. kids that rape on the fire escape Batman, Batman Begins Batman Begins, yeah, Batman begins sorry Batman begins, not The yeah. Dark Knight that's right didn't you tweet something about wanting to throw him off the fire escape or, or it makes you it makes you reconsider the, the entire film no or is that, or is that someone else because I think a lot of people have reacted very strongly to Joffrey in Game of Thrones he's my favourite character he's brilliant he's oh, really? I love he's superbly hateful yeah. <laughs> but most people seem to think now that his being in, in Batman Begins somehow besmirches the film yes. in some way <laughs> like he's such a hateful little shit that Batman should just kill him right there and then without a doubt it's a completely different universe and save the seven kingdoms <laughs> there are also in Home Alone there are quite a few but the only one I can remember off the top of my head is Hope Davis who is working at the ticket desk but there's Ooh. someone else there's a cop in there as well who was before he was famous but I can't remember who it was oh, that's interesting yeah, it's full of I love famous people in tiny roles. I love watching um, A Fish Called Wanda. Uh, Stephen Fry turns up at the end when he wasn't Stephen Fry, when he was just... <laughs> who, was he, who was he at the time? Well, he was Stephen Fry, but he wasn't Stephen o- Fry. Old Steve Fry. Yeah, he wasn't like the national treasure that he is now. Is that is that like Lawrence Fishburne when he was Larry Fishburne? Uh, I believe he was always a national treasure, no matter what name he chose. Uh, Helen, do you have a... Do you know what? I had an amazing one the other day and something I watched and I can't remember what it was. So well, that's, that's always story. useful. Hey! Always useful in the podcast. Uh, and James, you look utterly blank. No, I, what, weirdly, I'm just going to turn this around. I think it's more interesting when you watch films like, and I'm going to the Dark Knight again, when you see the amount of people, just random people, who just turn up in it. Uh, and I can't, ru- I can't ruin the film by mentioning any of them, but so many people from so many different TV shows uh, turn up in The Dark Knight Rises. That, uh, but you not play, as you can play a little game of bingo. No, not as their ca- That would be weird. <laughs> Bonnie Colwyn from The Wire turns up to Well, you've just, you've just given one away. Yes, I know, but it's a blink and he'll miss him, isn't it? And I won't say who he is or what he does. Well, he's Bonnie Colwyn in Well, yes, the in The Wire. Yes, he is. Okay. It was interesting. Uh, if Dread's coming out in September and uh, Wood Harris, who was Avon Barksdale, mm. uh, finally getting a decent movie role, is in Dread and he's quite a substantial villain. He's a secondary villain, actually, in that movie and he's really, oh, really nice. good in it. I've remembered one. Yay! There Yay. we go. Okay, just from just from The Dark Knight Rises today, this is not a spoiler, but one of the characters is played by Teal'c from Stargate SG-1. Yes, indeed. I don't know who that is. No, you it's, wouldn't. And it's, you're it's cooler not, you know, for not knowing. You are cooler for not knowing. And <laughs> I, would, I, cool. I would say I've never been a huge Stargate Gate Watcher. I've seen I have every seen single enough. episode oh, ever made. Well, this is why you're geekier than I am, James. <laughs> this is why you fail. Yes, it is why I fail. Except for, well, I, I'm lying. I have not seen all of Stargate Atlantis because even I don't sing that low. Which one was that? Was that the one with your bloke? <laughs> the one with my bloke? Yeah. What's you mean it? Robbie Colt? Uh, no, 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 that no, 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 that's Stargate, that's Stargate Universe. universe. Uh, okay. Which was actually really good, but it got cancelled after two seasons. Uh, uh, Stargate SG-1 ran for approximately 300 seasons. Uh, Atlantis had about five, I think. Five it got cancelled, but it had Conan in it. 
Yeah, had Karen Allen. Jason Momoa. Yes. Okay. Cal Drogo. I've been on set of that. Yes, indeed, you have. You were, I, you were not months. out of your depth uh, in any yeah, way, were you? Uh, SG One as well, I yeah. believe. No, no, I don't you, know. There were no, lots no, of games. You were on Caprica everywhere. as well, weren't you? It was all a big sci-fi hoopla, wasn't it? Yes. And they gave you a key. But Atlantis wasn't supposed to be there, and it just kind of happened. It was kind of fishy. Still, <laughs> still fairly certain it was Stargate Universe, but uh, no, I was on set. But the other sets next door, they took us on there. Just so well, we when I was on set things. of uh, Roland Emmerich's 2012, the uh, that's where Stargate oh, SG One was still filmed, and the Stargates and stuff were still there. This is like the worst name dropping yeah, game ever. Isn't and, it? <laughs> and Emmerich was really, really quite bitter about it because obviously he didn't want them to make the show based mm. on his film, and he spent a lot of the interview slagging off Stargate SG One. So there you go. Huh. Interesting. Interesting mm-hmm. facts. So Let's happened. move on. My God. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. So if this is about actors that you've forgotten are in stuff, or is this about actors who were not famous at that You point? know what? I don't even know where this conversation began. It began with Dowie81. No, I think we've Twitter. not answered this question. No, uh, we, we tend to not answer most people's <laughs> questions, actually. So, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, at Lee Alex says that she's put in an absolutely drinking game in the works for the podcast, which means that every time we say absolutely in a every time I say absolutely absolutely it's a bit of a reflex that uh, she has to take a shot so apologies to your liver should we all say it in concert here and try and give her blood poisoning yeah absolutely absolutely absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay so Andrew Moore's emails in to say are you able to watch a film without analysing every actor's tick director's trick or editor's cut I've gotten to a habit of breaking down every scene as the film goes along which can get in the way of me just kicking back and enjoying the thrill of the ride any advice I think this is actually a really important point because I think you genuinely can ruin your experience of a film if you have your reviewer's hat on which is mm. why oftentimes I don't want to review films I really want to see because it, it does ruin the enjoyment a little bit I find because uh, sometimes I want to sort of switch off and just dive into the screen not you literally. couldn't enjoy Equilibrium if you had your reviewer's <laughs> hat on <laughs> do you know what I mean it's exa- just or indeed Commando or half the films that I love Yeah, and I think it's important to be able to enjoy it for what it is to, to immerse yourself in the, inter- in the entertainment without trying to, to delve into the filmmaking so be a geek not a buff would be my advice. Yeah, I agree. And don't wear a hat either. Well, because it could fall down. Also, people sit behind you. Yeah, Indeed. very, very antisocial to them. Absolutely. Uh, Ollie, what do you what do you think about this? Um, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think you should watch any film with the intention of pulling it apart. Certainly not for the first time you've seen it. I think even reviewing it, you should just watch it to enjoy it. That's what you then judge it based on. Yeah, that's what I do. Um, it's difficult though. It's yeah, more difficult. I see. I don't consider really a reviewers' job to pull apart. Oh, look how they did this shot. This no, is terribly, terribly clever. But um, I know what you mean. I know you what you mean. Approach it differently. I know what you mean. But um, yeah, I think if you start, if you watch a film pulling apart everyone's ticks or tricks, then you're kind of ruining the film mm. for yourself. You know, chill the hell out. At original John One weighs in with a hard hitting question here. Uh, how many bats could a Batman bat if a Batman could bat bats? A hundred and in. None, because he can, yet he doesn't. <laughs> he, chooses, he chooses not to. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, original John 1. Anyway, as ever, should you wish to get in touch with us and gain immortality of sorts by having your name read out on a podcast, then do get in touch with us via the usual methods. Twitter us at, at Empire Magazine with the hashtag Empire Podcast. Email us at podcast at empireonline.com or Facebook us. Okay, before we move on to all things batty, there are other films out this week, films that have dared to go up against The Caped Crusader. Brave, brave films. One of those films is Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap, a history of the former directed by one of its pioneers, Mr. Ice-T. He popped into the pod booth this week to have a chat with us. Here are the highlights. We're very, very thrilled to have in the uh, pod booth today um, Ice-T. Thank you very much for joining us. What's up, man? Good to be here. It's good to be here. We haven't actually had anyone with any rapping talent whatsoever in here before so this is kind of a first for us this is a first you're you've acted obviously a, a stellar hip-hop career behind you and now 
directing your first feature a documentary called um, Something From Nothing, The Art of Rap. Um, one thing watching this movie which I really enjoyed was your wife does not listen to your lyrics. Mm-hmm. That's That's got to hurt, hasn't it? Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of like if you were a wrestler and you meet meet your wife and she goes, I don't like wrestling. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's just part of it. Um, I, 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 once I found out she didn't listen to the lyrics, I also realized a lot of people don't listen to rap lyrics. You know, I think Chris Rock has has a, a segment in his stand-up where he says girls don't really listen to the lyrics. They don't know what the guys are yeah. saying. And then when I was interviewing Salt in the movie, she said her husband says the same yeah. thing. A lot of people just vibe off the beats and the sounds of music. It's kind of like you can listen to music from a foreign country and not listen to the words, but you still pick up you know the musical content yeah. now of course when Coco told me she didn't listen to the words she went into a crash course on hip hop <laughs> and uh, now she listens to the words too much she'll she'll like say well how old is that rapper I said well he's 18 and she goes well how did he do all the stuff he said he did I said well he's lying <laughs> and she's scaring it for stuff you've been up to yeah well no not, not me so much but she she really like uh, picks out the groups that she likes. I mean, she's a dance music uh, fan, so yeah. you know she likes electronic music and dance like a lot of girls do. Yeah. And um, you know, there's certain rap records that she grew up around, but I'm hardcore rap, so she didn't really know about it. Yeah. But uh, now she's a big Mob Deep fan. She's a big Mob Deep fan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So once you know, once I told her what to listen for and what it was about, uh, she got into it. You know, so that you know, that's love. We've been married now eleven years, so so she's gonna have to understand. And then also, as soon as I finish doing a rap, I rap it to her. She's the first person that hears it. Really? Yeah. Cool. So very fresh pair of ears, I guess. From yeah. Yeah. New hip hop. Now she can criti- critique me. She said, "Well, wait a minute. You said you put the nines in the AK, and AK doesn't <laughs> hold nines." <laughs> Uh, feedback on your ammo. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I got to start at the beginning with this because, like I say, you have been, you know, well known as a rapper for a long time and as an actor. Obviously, yeah. Law and Order. Um, saw you way back when in New Jack City. Um, why now with this movie? Because it's such a passionate film about. I mean, there's a clue in the title, "The Art of Rap," and you start off by talking about, you know, you want people to understand where it's come from and exactly what's involved and it's not just the rap it's the writing isn't it I think that you know hip hop is has kind of like dug itself into global culture and now it's just something we take for granted you know I turn on the news the weatherman's rapping and I'm just looking at it like well they they're doing it but you know some people are joking and playing with it but I'm like do they really realize this comes from a serious place this came from something that changed a lot of people's lives and I always wanted to direct feature films so I said this is a good place to start and it just kind of came from an idea I decided I wanted to go and interview my friends in hip hop and ask them about the craft you know so I called them up I said look we're not going to talk about the money the cars the girls (laughs) the beef we're just going to talk about the art form and the craft and they were like wow nobody ever yeah. asks us those questions I, so um, my manager George he I, I pitched it to him and he knew Paul Too Good and the cats from Jolly Good Films out here in London and he 
gave them the idea and said, hey, Ice wants to do this film. And they were like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so next thing you know, they're on their way to New York City and we met up and started filming. And um, two years later, we had a movie. Yeah. One of the things that you do with, with pretty much everybody that you speak to in these kind of informal interviews is you ask them what the rap in their heads is, mm-hmm. you know, other than the stuff that they've kind of written themselves. Right. Do you have a rap in your head because I've got to say one of the raps that's, if I have any raps in my head it would be the lyric from New Jack Hustler oh, which one um, the bulletproof I die harder than Bruce Willis <laughs> I'm a that's a good rhyme too you know that <laughs> was awesome that 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 is uh, yeah I'm the illest bulletproof I die harder than Bruce Willis the the cool thing is naming the the name of the movie and at the same time saying something that makes sense yeah, right. and connecting his yeah, name. Yeah. So, that, you know, every once in a while, a rapper will come up with a real clever rhyme. You'll be like, wow, and that'll stick. I mean... Are you a big Die Hard fan? Well, you know, I, I love the Bruce Willis movies and stuff. And it just, you know, you you, 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 you say you're the illest. There's, there's not too many things to rhyme with illest and Willis. <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing you know, you think Die Hard. It just all starts to fit. And, you know, in the movie, you'll see Eminem, how he says it's like puzzles. Yeah. And sometimes it'll just fit. And you'll go, wow. Like, uh we did the title song to the movie and uh, my man Smooth the Hustler did the song and he's naming all these rappers and in one when he names me he goes Just Ice Cube's in my iced tea <laughs> so what he does is he names Just Ice Ice Cube yeah, right. and Ice Tea in one sentence like Just Ice Cube's in my iced tea the summer is hot he says yeah. and you know that's the fun part about rap it's when you can go beyond the basic rhymes and it gets into very clever rhyme patterns and rap lovers love that mm. they go sometimes you know you got to hit the repeat and you know back it up and say whoa 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 that was cool he just said this that and the other so yeah. you got to listen to the words cuz that's where all the fun happens i mean yeah. my favorite rhyme if you ask me what's in my head it'd be uh I was a fiend before I became a teen. I melted microphones, static cones, the ice cream music orientated. So when hip hop was originated, did it like pieces of puzzles, complicated. And you know, that's microphone fiend. <laughs> but I could say the whole rhyme because I grabbed the mic, try to say yes, y'all. They try to take it and say that I'm too small, cool. I don't get up that I kick a hole in the speaker, pull the plug, then I jet back to the lab without a mic to grab and then I add all the rhymes I had one after the other one then I make another one to diss the opposite and that's the brothers done I think that really good rhymes you they lock into people's heads and you're just like man this is so dope and I think the best compliment you can give another rapper is to quote a lyric yeah so who would play Ice-T in a movie because I mean a lot of first time directors kind of have a have a sort of cipher for themselves a little bit in the action well I don't know you know the first film I'm working with right now is a movie I wrote called um, The Kings of Vice and there's a part in it for myself but there's most it's, it's a part of me being young so I'd have to find someone to play a young me I'd play me after I got out of prison there's a prison part in it but uh, you know I 
I mean, that that's the fun of it, you know, like making a record is like you go in and you you pick out the beats and you you start the rhymes and you figure out who you want to feature in. Well, if that's fun, imagine doing a movie, yeah. you know, and that's something else I want to be involved in. Maybe not even so much directing, but just producing where I can hire the director and I can place the 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 the, the actors in the place and, you know, work the story out and put the soundtrack in there just a full experience and and now that films are 3d and everything is you know even television is getting more edgy yeah i'm ready i i just never felt i was suitable for regular tv yeah you know okay but now 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 with cable and stuff everything's opening up yeah right well, I just make sure you get over built Dr. Dre's house to design your your uh, your trailer on set. Wasn't that the craziest house? <laughs> you could see it from space. Yeah, but you know <laughs> the thing of it is, is the reason we showed that crib and we um, we made an effort not to try to catch people, you know, standing in front of their cars or all that. We didn't want to show the bling. Yeah. But the movie was called Something from Nothing, and. We showed a lot of grime and hard stuff, but I wanted to show somebody who really took it from nothing to show you what something is. Yeah. You know, and and Dre deserves that house. Dre was the architect behind NWA, Eminem, 50 Cent's Game. I mean, these are the biggest rappers, you know, in history. And he... He gets a little little something every time Eminem makes a record. And, you know, he deserves that. And I don't think anybody... When you see people like that who you've grown up with and you've idolized, you want to see that they won. It makes you believe that, you know, no one wants to say, okay, all these years, Ice, we follow you and now you're broke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like you've been lying to us all these years. You know, all this good game you're giving us on these records and we've been following it. You have to you have to prove that what you're saying is true. Yeah. <laughs> well, you go out and you see, you know, his headphones everywhere at the moment. And, well, and his music is so influential. And, and, and all of this music is influential and it permeates culture. So I hope that people go out and the film's out today. Yeah, um, and it's called um, Something from Nothing: The Art of Rap, and I hope people go and see it because it's great, and the music is great. And uh, um, congratulations on your first. And we hope to see your feature film. Yeah, well, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get it in. We got a big show tonight, a premiere, and um, Raekwon is here, Melly Mel, Chuck D, and you know, we're just gonna get it in. I think the world is gonna really receive this film. We haven't gotten one bad review. No. In a world of haters. <laughs> so, you know, we're just rolling with it. But yeah, this is my first step in a long journey into the film business. Yeah. Well, hope there's many more. Congratulations. Before we finish, I've got to ask you, someone from the movie world that's gone into the to the hip-hop game, which is not a usual, usually the other way around, mm -hmm. Joaquin Phoenix, did you hear any of his rapping? Did you come across any of his... Joaquin Phoenix is rapping? Yeah. He, he did a kind of a, a hip-hop short-lived hip-hop career for a movie mm. did you come across that no nah, nah I mean you know the thing about hip-hop is the thing is with any art anybody that listens to it all they want to know is that you're serious and you're not posing the biggest thing is to go out and make a mockery of it that's what they're worried about yeah. you know when I did Body Count and we did the metal thing you know first rock the rock uh, critics wanted to see whether I was you know messing around and they go oh these guys can really play 
And then we got the green light. We were out on <laughs> tour with, you know, Guns N' Roses and Metallica. But that's the thing with hip hop. It's like, show us that you put in your work. Show us that you're trying to do it. And you really, if you're good, like we say in the movie, once Eminem came through the door, you know, okay, I'm a white kid, but he was so devastating. It was like, oh, you're in. Not only are you in, you're up in the top five, you know? <laughs> so, you know, I would like to hear Joaquin Phoenix trying to rap, you know, or whatever. And I say trying to rap because he's new. <laughs> <laughs> when I first started, I was trying to rap. He might be good. Check it out on YouTube. Thank you so much for coming okay. in and taking the time. Peace. And now, like Galactus, I am the devourer of worlds. Only instead of worlds, I'm in movie news. So, Helen, hit me with your best Reed Richards-like shot. Oh, dear. What have you got? Oh, dear. Um, what? <laughs> I have actually two shots, if you oh, will. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, both, however, concerning the same actor, and that is one Daniel Radcliffe. Ooh. Uh, the former Harry Potter has signed up for two films this week. Um, he will be starring in Horns for director Alexandra Aja. Aja. And also the F word opposite Zoe Kazan. Good lord. Now, the F word in this case being friends, of course. Friends. Uh, are they Wife. friends who develop it as something more? Who knows? I think they're friends who one party would perhaps like to be something more, but will they be? Who knows? Oh. I think they're going to be very embarrassed when they realise that everyone else thinks something different of the F word. <gasps> that, well, you don't think they <laughs> could have meant it, do you? Possibly. Who knows? Who knows? Well, that's good news, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, obviously, he's one of the nicest men in showbiz. Um, he is. And I think he he's actually, you know, going to grow into something. I think he was good in... He's, he was very, very, very good on stage on Broadway um, mm. a couple of years ago. Is that the he one was, where he got his winkle out, or is that the other one? The Well, I, I didn't see the one with his winkle out because he's I'm no a shy and retiring person. But um, in the other one, um, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, he was That's terrific. winkle free. That's winkle free, um, <laughs> but is full of singing and dancing. So I'm just keeping score here. So. Yeah, okay. I saw the uh, non-winkle-free one, and he was very good in that. Yes, oh, okay. I saw Equus as well. He was excellent. It's an interesting thing because uh, Woman in Black obviously doesn't really get a chance to. I felt breathe in that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not what I would call a, a particularly. Yeah, it's very buttoned-on. Thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I liked him in that. I thought he was very good for what he was given to do. Yeah. Yes, but he didn't. I mean, he didn't have a lot to do. I mean, it was look, look a little bit scared and surprised was yes. essentially the tone, and that was no fault of his. That was the part. Um, I don't think it was a particularly dramatic role, and so I'm really interested to see him actually, you know, get what into other next. things. You know, do interesting. Well, I think. Roles. I mean, the, the F word it was um, a blacklist script. It did really well uh, on the blacklist. It's based mm -hmm. on a play called Toothpaste and Cigars, um, and it's been directed by the Goon director Michael Douse. Now, the Goon wasn't a brilliant film, but I think most of the problems with that were the script, mm -hmm. and actually, it, mm -hmm. it had a lot of heart yeah, to it. Was okay. it. So, yeah. you know, that might not be a bad thing. But the one I'm really excited about, actually, is Horns, because mm -hmm. the novel it's based on is terrific. Mm -hmm. That's by Joe Hill, who, mm -hmm. despite the surname, is actually the son of Stephen King. Um, and it's about uh, sort of basically a guy who's suspected of having murdered his girlfriend, uh, wakes up one morning with horns on his forehead, uh, devil-looking little, little mm. things, um, and discovers he can sort of not quite hear the thoughts of people around him but they just tell him things that they would never normally tell anyone and and therefore he sort of uses this power to set about discovering what happened when she died yeah very very good book and Joe Hill is fantastic he really yeah. has inherited his dad's talent for words and uh, great premises as well if you've yeah, ever read it, so. his first novel Heart Shaped Box which was 
uh, I guess Neil Jordan was going to direct it at one point it's a fantastic really really scary ghost story uh, check it out if you haven't Shia LaBeouf was attached to this role for a while in he horns. was yeah um, so, so it's interesting to see that Daniel Radcliffe is orbiting I guess the same circles that, that Shia LaBeouf is the same roles anyway yeah and I think it's a very different kind of role for him it's a lot more kind of growing up than we've seen obviously in, in Potter but also you know again because the woman in black was so kind of buttoned down and controlled you know this this is a chance to be more a little bit more out, out there which I think is a good thing so fantastic yeah. Well, well done, done Daniel. Indeed. Fingers crossed for full frontal. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will, yeah, we'll have confirmation at some point whether they're going to be winkle-free to those films. <laughs> we will, of course, keep you right up to date here in the Empire Podcast. Uh, James, you're winkle-free at the moment. Thank God. Yes, I am fully clothed in the pod booth, <laughs> yes. I can confirm. Good, excellent. Uh, what have you got? Uh, a weird one, actually. Uh, just that, the Comic-Con clip for Silent Hill Revelation in 3D... Uh, has appeared online. Um, this in itself is perhaps not news, but it is interesting to me. Um, Silent Hill, the original one, the Christoph Gans one, is not a good film, but I still to date think it's the most faithful video game adaptation that's been made. Uh, I think it's really good. The Silent Hill games, and if anyone's ever played them, they're really atmospheric. They're absolutely terrifying. I played an hour of the first one, couldn't you? Yeah, not they are the kind of games, certainly the second one, Silent Hill 2, is again, you can't play in a room on your own uh, unless it's daylight. And it really captured the spirit of it. The biggest problem with the original film uh, the production design was great the imagery was great the, the story was perfectly serviceable it wasn't scary obviously that's fundamentally a problem for a horror film and what I'm kind of curious about with this one is whether or not uh, Michael Bassett can actually make a Silent Hill film which captures everything the first one did but is also frightening unfortunately from the clip it doesn't seem to be the case well, I disagree um, with that really? yeah I saw, these, I saw these two clips there's another clip that they showed at Comic Con uh, Michael J. Bassett was there. Uh, he's the guy who directed Death Watch and Wilderness and Solomon Kane, which and recently Strike Back. Well, two episodes. Get. He's directed two episodes in the next season of Strike Back, mm. which we haven't seen yet, uh, as a kind of just to keep his hand in the water between Solomon Kane and uh, and Silent Hill Revelation. Um, and I, I thought these were good clips. He he they, he said they were PG thirteen clips. They said they were the only thing from the films that he could really show the mm. audience at Comic Con because Comic Con over the last few years has kind of they don't really like to show R-rated stuff anymore it's a family they, show yeah, yeah it's a family show you've got a lot of kids in Hall age, six and a half thousand people a lot of them are kids and so they don't really want to show blood and guts and decapitation and uh, so he said that the scenes get much more intense well, I thought some of the imagery in these scenes was quite freaky you have the, the scene you're talking about is a, is a group of nurses who are blind and um, I believe they're from the game yeah well the, the thing with this is yeah, as you said nurses and they're moving and there's a guy strapped to a gurney uh, and they move as he moves they move as he moves it, basically what that is it's kind of a callback to perhaps the only tent sequence in the first film where Radha Mitchell has to navigate a corridor filled with them in the dark and she has to very carefully edge between them so they don't you know stab oh that makes sense okay um, it, they come from Sun Hill 2 the game the Sun Hill 2 the game all the the, the, the monsters are kind of uh, projections of the protagonist sort of like psyche and they're all sort of deformed feminine objects uh, which is where they, they obviously come from but yes you're quite right they're sort of nurses without faces all the characters are faceless in the game Okay. Um, I thought this was pretty, a pretty effective scene and the other scene uh, that's not online at the moment is a scene where um, the female lead Adelaide Clements uh, wanders into a room and it's uh, there's another girl who's bound up in what looks like spider-like webbing mm. and the spider is a mannequin spider so it's made of parts of, of mannequins with, okay. with you know doll heads that are on its appendages and it's very very creepy and it moves in a very very strange almost I guess Linda Blair in the Exorcist kind mm. of way and I thought it was quite disturbing and freaky and it looks like it could be a fun ride well that would be nice I'd really like it I mean video game adaptations quite rightly have a bad rap um, but I do have a soft spot for 
for Gans Silent Hill and I'm, I'm you know I genuinely want to see this not least of all because it's also shot in 3D yeah uh, and it it's really nice to see I mean I've got 3D fatigue like everyone else but it's really nice to see a 3D film shot in 3D not a horrible post-production job indeed and I spoke to Michael J. Bassett at Comic Con and he's a big fan of the games and he has a, a, a decent background in horror so yeah, fingers crossed for this one it's out on October 31st in this country which I believe is Halloween indeed oh there you go get your scare on uh, Ollie what about you uh, my story is that Andrew Stanton Yes. Uh, is very possibly, although not 100% confirmed, starting work on Finding Nemo 2. Which I think is Ooh. interesting. But Nemo was found. Yeah, well, I guess he'll get lost again. Or, or somebody else will. Or he'll have to find something. My theory Nemo finding. That. Nemo finding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's been talked of for a, a long time. It's one of the most beloved Pixar films. It's, and, it's the uh, Pixar version of Taken 2. What, isn't what it? can they do? What can they possibly do? But I just think, lose someone again. I think Dory will get lost. She's only got a seven-second memory. It makes sense. No, that would be too obvious. If anything, it oh, should be fine. Dory having to find someone. Well, who that lost. wouldn't end well. So Dory and Nemo having to find Marlin. Marlin. Yeah. All right. Okay. This or Seagull, whatever. Okay. Anyway, so that's happening. That's happening, uh, and we're happy about this. I mean, there's there's a definite move from Pixar in the last few years into the sequel business that they haven't really touched until now. Obviously, there was Toy Story too. But uh, we've got Monsters University coming up. That's a prequel, I know. But yeah. we've had Toy Story 3. Um, we've got Cars 2. Um, I think, what else do we have? Is that it, pretty much? But okay, Finding yeah. Nemo 2. Yeah. At the moment, yeah. yeah. I mean, there is the argument to be made that it is... Lazy is the wrong word. But superfluous? It's no, not superfluous. I mean, look at all the Toy Story films. There were two sequels. None of them were superfluous. True. They got better, if anything, in my opinion. Also true. Um, but, I mean, yeah, you can make the argument that they're going for the obvious thing but then they make films like Brave which I think are very much not an obvious choice yeah. for them and, turn out, and are terrific so without having seen uh, Monsters University I don't really feel it's fair to judge until you actually see the film I want to see Up 2 Down <laughs> Up was utterly perfect don't touch it do not touch Up <laughs> the other thing about this one is that Andrew Stanton is generally the guy in the room saying no to sequels. He's mm. generally the, the member of the Pixar Brain Trust who is anti-sequel and who has to be brought around and convinced that any sequel is worth doing. If he is involved and if, you know, if the Brain Trust has kind of okayed this, then that suggests to me that he's got or they've got a really good idea for it, mm. in which case, happy days. I'm going to play a devil's advocate here. Isn't uh, the timing a little suspicious in that John Carter which most of us in this room I think liked no I didn't no, like it didn't like it absolutely it. Okay. well two, two of us, us two of us Yay. and uh, you know I've got the, the microphone here and you've got a microphone yes. so we'll 51, just shut 51, the mic 51% we're good uh, so yay John Carter uh, we really liked it but obviously it, it well flopped really really badly yes. and is there a sense that this could be perceived as him slinking back to animation with no, his tail I mean, that, that kind like, of suggests that animation is in some, some way a I know I don't want to do that I'm not going to get to why is animation in that way but some people will say that the other thing is of course that he's never first of all he's never kind of left Pixar exactly it's always Again, been home true. he's always been there on the brain trust second of all we want him working and going to Pixar is the quickest way to get him working again He's one of those good filmmakers, right? So, and it's know. a good way to keep him away from live action, which I think we can all agree oh, is a good idea. Oh, oh that's, that's not fair. fair. No, oh, there's that's nothing yeah. technically wrong that's with that. That's ridiculous. Film. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're already agreeing silence. Suddenly, suddenly, fifty percent became seventy-five percent. No, I didn't. I didn't like. I didn't like John Carter, but I don't think the big problems with it were 
because he couldn't direct. No, no, it was, no, it was, it was just it was, a, it was a bad idea, I think. It well, I, th- was, I think it was. I think it was um, a tough story to tell, and I don't think they ever quite nailed the structure. And I think it got a little bit dumped by its studio a little. But other than that, it was perfect. I'm not saying it was perfect, but I think it was better than any number of action films that have done much better because they've had more behind them. But in general, we're excited about this, uh, which is a good thing, I think. Any yeah. anytime Pixar makes a movie, I'm you know probably going to be excited. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew Stanton in, in Pixar hasn't had a miss even in the slightest. So no. yeah, if he's doing another one, very excited. Hurrah! Thanks, guys, for your news input. Coming up, we have more bad goodness, of course. But first, this week's competition. Two weeks ago, we offered three genius of Hitchcock books produced by and courtesy of the BFI. The question was, what was Alfred Hitchcock's last film? The answer was, of course, Family Plot. And the winners are... Jeremy Kinney, Reese Fullerton and Jonathan Alsop. Your prizes should be on the way to you this week and other competition prizes are at long last, I'm delighted to say, receiving their prizes. We just got a job lot in. Sorry for the delay. This week's competition, as you might expect, is indeed Bat-themed. To stand a chance of winning one of five pairs of Blu-ray copies of Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, courtesy of Warner Home Video, simply answer this week's ridiculously easy question. Nessa Carbonell, Gotham City's mayor in the Nolan films, previously starred as which superhero? Hmm, maybe not so ridiculously easy this week, but still eminently noble and very Googleable if you don't know. And there is a bad connection of sorts, which is why we asked, and that's all we're going to give you. And just to reiterate, that's not a box set of Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. They're two separate Blu-rays. But still, very, very good prize. Get entering. Okay, before we get to the week's review, or, well, reviews, but yeah, really, review, let's check in with the director of The Dark Knight Rises. We usually make guests come to our Batcave, but we're prepared to make exceptions now and again. And for Chris Nolan, the genius behind all three recent Batman films, The Prestige, Inception, Memento, Insomnia, and Following, have we left anything out? I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? it. That's pretty much it. We did just that. Helen and I went along to have a good old natter with Mr. Nolan. So uh, delighted to be joined by Christopher Nolan. Uh, now, I looked this up. You were announced as director of what was then Batman 5 on January 28th, 2003. Mm. Now, since then, I worked this out, 3,461 days have elapsed. Back at that, start, at that time in the process, did you see yourself being involved at this point? Uh, I certainly wasn't that, that forward thinking. Um, I really only... Uh, dared sort of think about what Batman Begins was going to be. I mean, maybe just because I'm, I'm a bit superstitious, but I, I certainly didn't want to make any assumptions about what people would think of that film, whether they would want to see, you know, my take on the character longer term than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we tried to really just, just with each of the three films, you know, try to just put everything we had to tell about the character into that film as if, as if it was the one chance we had to deal with the characters. And now you're at the end of that process, mm. over almost 4,000 days later. <laughs> How do you feel? Are you really exhausted, relieved? Oh, I'm certainly a little tired. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't know about relieved. I mean, you're always, I suppose at the end of any big film, uh, at different times you feel relieved that you've finished a particular part of the process. But then you have the tension or the, or the you know, the pressure of the next stage of it. In this case, you know, we're about to put the film out all around the world and, you know, see what the fans think. Um, so it's a sort of mixture of, of a bit of relief and a bit of more pressure and anxiety and a bit more relief. And, uh, once once the film has been out for a couple of months, people have really had the chance to, to tell me what it is. At, at that point, I think I'll feel like it's finished. 
I mean, the, the first film had very much a, a sort of, you know, themes of, about fear, about dealing with fear, about how you react to that. The second film, the sort of balance between, I guess, order and chaos to an extent. This one feels like it kind of ties both of those back in together a little bit. It, it, it seems to come full circle, very obviously very deliberately. Well, certainly we try to, to continue the story. I mean, we try to really make one story from three large parts, three large chapters that make up one story. And uh, uh, the underlying themes really all come back to Bruce Wayne and his journey and the trauma he suffered as a child and what that's meant. And so there's, a, there's an undercurrent of, for example, fear. You know, there's a big, uh, there's a very strong uh, thematic concern with fear of what fear can do to people and what it could be used for and, and so forth. And we're trying to be true to those threads. And I think Christian in his performance um, is very consistent to maintaining the the truth of you know what's happened to this guy and where that might lead and what impulses that's driven him towards. I think he's never strayed far from those uh, those original ideas, those original concerns. And I think it means that if people do take the time and, and trouble to watch all three films in you know together in, in some way, they'll they'll see a pretty amazing achievement in performance from Christian Bale. Is that what allowed you to take this, I guess, as a risk, really, of advancing the story eight years to show that mm. physical and emotional toll that, that being Batman has taken on, Bruce? Well, it's partly about the physical and emotional toll. It's also partly about being true to the end of the last film. So what you have at the end of The Dark Knight is an ending that hangs very much on a substantial sacrifice to achieve a, a certain end. So for that to have meaning, it has to have worked in some sense it has to have been successful uh, and I didn't want to just abandon that and pick up a, a new story with a, with a whole new set of ideas so for me that led to the idea of the eight year gap it led to the idea that you've got Bruce Wayne shut up away self-imposed exile mm. because he's hung up his cape and his cowl he's living in a world that at least superficially doesn't need Batman but he hasn't moved on, as, as Alfred's pointing out. He hasn't moved on emotionally, he hasn't moved on in, in a practical sense either. And how has Gotham sort of changed in that time? Because on, on one hand, at the beginning of the film, we see a, a city that's pretty much crime-free, mm. but it becomes clear as the film goes on that there's still you know, a, a lot of unrest beneath the surface, quite literally in some cases. Yeah, we, we try to run with the idea introduced it in The Dark Knight, that on a practical basis, if you could eliminate organized crime within, within a large... Um, urban environment that would deal with uh, a lot of a lot of crime issues and so forth, and at least superficially, as I say, you'd have a, a much safer place to live. Um, really, the idea that that improvement in Gotham is based on a lie is very important to the beginning of the film and plays out over the course of the film. Uh, it's really coming back to one of the things that I find the most interesting about Batman which is that because he works on the wrong side of the law, because he's a vigilante, you're never very far from the issue of the means and the ends. You're never really very far from that idea of what is acceptable in terms of fighting crime, in terms of trying to restore the world to some sense of, of good. Uh, and so in the first film, it was very much about corruption, about an environment so corrupt that Bruce Wayne couldn't work within the established structures of the law and he had to move outside it. And that was very important to being able to accept the idea of vigilantism 
I think where we get to um, through the next two films and where the Dark Knight Rises really picks picks up is that idea of um, that concept of working outside the law has become more and more acceptable to Commissioner Gordon. It's become institutionalized in a sense with the, the lie about Harvey Dent. And so the film really picks up with saying, okay, where in real life, where would that lead? You know, if we did that in the real world, if that were an underlying uh, lie, you know, the... the prosperity is based on is that going to work and one of the many things I love about the, the trilogy is the weight that you give to the supporting characters in previous Bat movies for example Commissioner Gordon has been something of a, a buffoon um, but in, in these movies he is not given equal weight uh, mm-hmm. to Bruce Wayne and Batman but he certainly carries a lot of, of this movie and The Dark Knight can you talk about that decision to not marginalize those characters well I think it, it it's partly from uh, looking at the, the comic books, the graphic novels. I mean, certainly, I think, in various guises, you know, Frank Miller and so forth. I mean, if you look at Batman Year One, you know, Commissioner Gordon's a pretty interesting figure, Long Halloween and so forth. Um, and then when you succeed in casting somebody like Gary Oldman as that character, you know, Gary's, you know, perhaps the, the greatest actor of his generation, certainly one of the greats. And so, the possibilities and the opportunities you see for that actor and that, that characterization to play subtleties and to play huge moral uncertainty, huge shifts. And you know, he has a couple of, of, I think, really amazing moments in this film where he just gets to really sum up enormous moral quandaries that we can all sort of relate to. Uh, that was really inspired by working with somebody of, of Gary's talent. I wanted to ask as well about a couple of the new characters because um, from the trailers and the stills and so on, I didn't think that Joseph Gordon-Levitt would have nearly as important a role as he does. And, and coming out of the film yesterday, everybody that we were with was talking about uh, Selena Kyle and, and how well Anne Hathaway, it was almost like a method performance. She, she st- steals jewels, but she also steals scenes. You know? <laughs> um, so, I mean, how did, you, how did you, I mean, obviously you'd worked with jo- Joseph before, but how did you choose Anne for Catwoman? Well, I mean, we cast Anne and, you know, the end of a, a pretty long process. I, I met with her early on, but I felt with with Catwoman, you know, we would need to, you know, actually screen test and you know all this stuff because she's such an icon. Um, and Anne just just came, comes alive as the character. I mean, she just was able to take on the notion of not ego, alter ego, not you know, librarian by day, jewel, jewel thief by night, Selina Catwoman. The idea that this is Selina Kyle, we don't actually refer to her as Catwoman mm-hmm. in the film, not out of any other reason than there's no reason for a character to call her that, but it speaks to the underlying uh, principle behind the character, which is to say this is a, a consistent person, this is Selina Kyle, and uh, she's a con woman, she's a grifter, she's a jewel thief, and uh, Anne really came up with a very convincing take on that. What she brings to it, and what we saw as soon as we uh, screen tested for the role is she's an incredibly precise actress in, in film. You know, she's capable of a very, very realistic psychological characterization, which is the basis of what the character needed to be. But she also has this incredible sense of um, performance. She can go on stage you know, and sing a musical number or whatever and captivate a thousand people, fill a room with her energy. And so when you're looking at building on a psychologically real basis, but building into 
some very extreme iconography, which is what Catwoman with the costume and the fighting and you know all the stuff represents. You need both those sides, and Anne has those in equal measure. There were rumors initially, I mean, I know first cuts are always longer than what we see eventually in the cinemas, but there were rumors of a four-hour cut of this movie at one point. Is that true? And if so, how difficult was it to take stuff out? No, it's not true at all. I, you know, you read a lot of crazy things. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I would want to sit through a four-hour version of this movie. No, I, I, as a writer-director, it's uh, pretty easy for me to be rigorous and precise about the, the running time of the film and the length and I, I think with each film I've told the studio exactly how long it was going to be two years ahead of time and <laughs> arrived on the money um, it's because I'm able to weed things out uh, on paper uh, which is obviously a lot more efficient than shooting the things and then pulling them out and it's why there are no deleted scenes on, on the DVDs for the films because with Lee Smith who's just such a supremely talented editor he's able to compress an enormous amount of storytelling into a very short space of time, uh, aided uh, considerably by Hans Zimmer at his school, because what I've demanded of, of Hans over the years is for him to be able to bind together very disparate threads of narrative so that you can really tell a lot of story, really cram a lot of story into a what's frankly almost a montage approach, even though there's dialogue in it, because the music is overscoring everything. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, I thought the the end of the film was just terrific, an amazing, amazing uh, last act, especially the last 15 sort of minutes. Um, and it feels like the end, it feels like the end of the trilogy, but it also feels like you haven't burned your bridges except literally, you know, um, <laughs> you've sort of left left some way open that somebody could take something of this and continue no, we shouldn't if they talk wanted. about the end. Well, no, I, d I don't want to give no, away stories, but... About you will. Everybody <laughs> thinks they won't, but they, you can't ask any of these questions okay. without giving something away to people who've been paying attention. Okay. And I know that Empire readers particularly pay a lot of attention. Damn them. Oh. Well, let's go with, with a different tack in. Uh, one of the, uh, the standard quotes from Empire's review of the movie is, God help the person who has to reboot this. <laughs> so it's, it's almost inevitable. Five years' time, six years' time, whatever. Yeah. Do you have any advice for the guy who has to eventually reboot Batman? None at all. I mean, I would, no, absolutely not. Uh, no, the only, the only advice I would have is, is I, you know, when I first met with Paul Levitz of DC, uh, prior to Batman Begins, he explained to me very clearly that, that Batman, of all superheroes, has thrived on reinterpretation mm. and almost been strengthened by it. And I'm talking obviously about over the years in the comic books, but then also through, through the movies. And so when the time is right, when somebody, you know, does whatever the next iteration of, of the character is, they simply need to be true to what they really want to see and, and do something that, that they believe in, not, not worry too much about whatever else is telling them it should be. Chris Nolan there talking about his final go-round in the director's bat chair, and as indeed we said to him, God help the poor sod who has to reboot this. So let's get straight down to it with the weeks and barring possibly The Avengers and The Hobbit, the year's biggest release, it is, of course, The Dark Knight Rises, in which Christian Bale's ageing battered bat has to contend with his biggest threat yet, the rise of the mumbly mofo, Bane. Does he have what it takes to triumph? Will the bat be broken? Will Anne Hathaway's Catwoman be a help or a hindrance? And will we be able to understand anything that Bane says? Well, we're going to stay spoiler-free here. Lowe's craving a spoiler-filled review of The Dark Knight Rises, a la our amazing Spider-Man podcast. We'll be delighted to know we're going to be putting one of those up on Tuesday which gives you the entire weekend to watch The Dark Knight Rises as many times as you like and let the whole thing sink in but for now 
let's stick to non-specifics. James, what did you make of this? I thought it was magnificent. It, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? We've had a few disappointments this year, and I think probably the pressure on this one was more than anything else this year, I think mm. it's fairly safe yep. to say. Even more so than Prometheus. Uh, for me personally, I thought it delivered on every level. Uh, really fantastic. Really loved Bane, including the accent. Uh, that was nice to see that they, they'd redubbed that so you could understand what it's he was saying. It's been cleaned up considerably. Very much so, yeah, from the from the early footage that we've seen. Uh, Hathaway is astonishing, uh, almost to the point of being scene-stealing. Re- yeah, really, really loved every minute of it, actually. Uh, every, and it's a considerable film at nearly three hours. I wasn't bored, you know, I didn't think it let up. It, it Obviously, it slows in places, which is a, a deliberate pacing choice, but uh, I think it's fantastic. And a lot of people are going to immediately compare this with the Avengers, because that makes a certain amount of sense. Um, but, and rather us get into a big fight over which one is better, I do think that actually Dan hit it on here when he said it's like trying to compare Heat and Independence Day. I think mm. they're both great films, but they're very different films. Uh, and I think they're both very good in their own right. Well, that's great, and thanks for uh, that. And join us next week, uh, Ollie. What was your take on the whole? Uh, I I too loved it. Um, I I wouldn't say I loved every minute. Um, I think it's a less elegant piece of storytelling than The Dark Knight. Uh, it's got a lot of um, the beginning because it picks up eight years later. I don't think that's any kind of spoiler. No, it's not um, but there's a lot of establishing of what's happened. So everyone gets kind of a monologue at the beginning, which is clunky is the wrong word, but it's. It's not as smooth as everything was in The Dark Knight. But then once it picks up and everything's established and it's into story, I think it's phenomenal. And the ending, which I won't give anything away about, I thought was just so mm. masterfully done that I could forgive any problems before. Anne Hathaway, I, you say she's on the edge of scene scene. I thought she stole the whole show. <laughs> but that's just method on her part, really, isn't it? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> yes. Stealing scenes yes, is true. practice. She'll but steal anything like Hathaway. If, her, it's not, if it's not nailed down, she'll have it. You know, there was so much made of Bane's introduction, which is this big flashy thing it's mm. extraordinarily done I've still no idea how they did it uh, but hers is much smaller but I, th- I thought more enjoyable it was just a really, there's a moment where she just has this look on her face mm. and uh, where she kind of reveals who she is and I, I just thought it was really beautifully done Yeah, and no, she's, she's uh, all the way through if she's not on screen you kind of want her to come back not just because she's in a, a rubber cat suit but because she's very funny and she gets all the best lines she does yeah. she does she does I, I, you know I think uh, what I love about the Chris Nolan trilogy is that it gives supporting characters a fair mm. shot and in that in a dark night uh, Gordon's story is almost as important as Bruce Wayne mm. slash Batman's and again it, it is I mean he gets a huge chunk of that movie a huge chunk of it's dedicated yeah. to him he's, he's part of the major I'm, I'm not arguing that I'm, I'm just saying they've never sufficiently explained to me why the heck he fakes his own death but go on we're That's not getting into aside. that now we've got a spoiler podcast for The Dark Knight Rises coming up we can we can deviate into Dark Knight okay. at, at some point I'm going to rewatch it and then come up with a theory um, oh I you may have a theory it's a, it's a, it's a spur of the moment thing it's a spur of the moment thing it's rubbish is what it is and it's a spur of the moment thing. we're doing it we're doing it we're getting off the beaten track here but you know and I love the fact that uh, Gary Oldman gets a lot to do in this movie yes. and the other movies and uh, you know Michael Caine Morgan Freeman they all get their moments and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt Joseph Gordon has Levitt's a much terrific. bigger role than yeah. has been hinted at yeah, yeah, no, very uh, much so. beforehand really so, uh, and he's very good in it yes about which we are going to say nothing but no, I, I, I will also say that um, I'm, I'm not going to go into any spoiler territory here uh, if I have any quibbles whatsoever with Batman Begins and The Dark Knight which may well be my favourite um, non-Avengers superhero movie of all time <laughs> I just remember the Avengers and X-Men 2 and Superman 2 and Spider-Man 2 anyway ignore that um, is that the last acts don't really come together in that way I mean the, the last act of Batman Begins is a little muddled with yeah. Lars Al Ghul and yeah, the train staff and that incredibly stupid MacGuffin of the microwave emitter which will vaporise water supply but not the water inside your own body anyway it's neither here nor there and then of course there's uh, The Dark Knight which has this great Batman Joker showdown and then 
goes over the edge in this overwrought Harvey yeah. Dent stuff at the end which I thought maybe could have been the, the, the point of a third film anyway uh, this movie doesn't do that the, the final act brings everything together mm. yeah. Uh, yeah. and it is fantastic really satisfying ending I think one thing that's quite key in this one as well which I don't think has happened in either but, you know, in Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Christopher Nolan has been accused of being quite cold you know you don't care about his characters I did in this Right. There are moments from unexpected quarters as well. I almost don't want to say who. No, I agree. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I agree with because you. Because there's one character who has just one. It's like 30 seconds, yeah, but absolutely. it's genuinely really moving. Mm. And uh, I think everyone you care about how they come out of this. I don't know if you're meant to feel affection for Batman. You're meant to just feel awe and and and, and reassured by his heroics. It's Bruce Wayne that you're meant to identify with, and I think you do. And this movie goes uh, a long way towards grounding Bruce Wayne. I mean, I don't think Batman appears for for a while mm. in the film. Mm. And it's very, very much Bruce Wayne's story. And Bale is fantastic in the role. This is a different Bruce Wayne. He's he's battered. He's broken. And the film just about gets right that that treading that fine line between him being broken and and introspective and feeling sorry for himself, where you want to slap him out of his stupor. Oh, I never and, got uh, And that's what I'm saying. It gets yeah. it right. It could so easily have gone the other way, and it doesn't. And it has. It's you know Nolan's confidence in this movie is astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to say, you know, for me, The Avengers is probably the best. movie movie of the summer whereas The Dark Knight is probably the best film of the summer I think there's a clear distinction to be made between the two I what's the distinction I think movies are uh, first and foremost fun and films are sometimes serious minded of purpose uh, serious minded of execution mm, uh, yeah I don't agree with that no. I think if they're if, well, I love The Avengers uh, and I, how much I love Dark Knight Rises doesn't take anything away from that but it's how much you enjoy something and I enjoyed this immensely mm. like to the point that I would have gone sat and watched it again and I actually think that the serious-mindedness of this film has been massively overstated. I think this is the most comic book-y of the Christopher Nolan Bat films mm-hmm. uh, for lots of reasons that I'm not even going to touch upon mm. in this um, podcast. In this podcast, mm-hmm. um, it, it has it feels a lot more comic booky than than previous installments, and he still has that commitment to reality and so on. But uh, a lot of the the way it's structured, a lot of the way things happen in the sort of the first half of the third act, feels very much like a comic book. And it does have a sense of humour as well, yeah. which is yeah. yeah. All right, my 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 theory has been blown out <laughs> of the water in seconds. Don't listen to me, but it is. You're absolutely right. It is more comic booky, and there are many many things that happen towards the end that are that are you know not quite the level of having Kapow superimposed oh, on the no, screen. Oh no, not that kind of comic no, book, but, but certainly the sort of. Um, you know the better class of recent comic book I would say absolutely but because the, the question is inevitable uh, and I think we're all probably going to say at the bottom of the three because the three superhero movies this summer Spider-Man's probably at the bottom so Hand on Heart Dark Knight or Avengers Hell um, Avengers for me um, not to flag off Dark Knight but Avengers is still my, my film of the year probably so far James. Without a shadow of a doubt, The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, for me, I thought The Avengers was a nailed-on four-star film, and I think this is an absolute uh, unequivocal five. I love them both for different reasons. Mm-hmm. As James says, they're completely different films, but uh, I came out with both of them very, very happy. I think if it's one thing, um, I think this is movie uh, movie is going to improve with uh, subsequent viewings. The way Batman yeah. Begins has, for me, I think. When I first saw Batman Begins, I thought that's, that's pretty good. It's a very solid yeah. reboot. 
but the more and more I see it and I think I, it's one of those films where you, if you flick on TV and you're halfway through Batman Begins you, you almost have to stay with it until the first which would be end. a shame since the first half is so much better well yes true but uh, that's why we have Blu-rays then, so you can go back and watch the first half true. Uh, so that is the uh, Dark Knight Rises sorted out and put into a box but if you want to hear more if you want to actually hear us go into depth and some detail uh, with Dan Jolin no less the man who is Empire's Dark Knight Rises expert then do listen to our spoiler filled Dark Knight Rises podcast uh, there are as I mentioned uh, some other films that are going to be out this week I hope to feed off the Dark Knight scraps I know it's very very dangerous but this is what we call counter programming in the business most of the biggies have stayed away but films worthy of your attention are indeed the aforementioned Something From Nothing The uh, Art of Rap the Ice-T rap documentary and then we gave that four stars there's also uh, another documentary Revenge of the Electric Car which is a, a sequel to Who Killed the Electric Car correct and uh, we didn't like that one so much we gave that two stars and Greta Gerwig stars in Lola Versus which we gave three stars to and there are other films out as well In Your Hands gives, gets four um, and Swan Down gets three that's pretty much it. Those are your options for this week, but we'll imagine that most of you will be off genuflecting in front of the bat, I'd say. Anyone going to see it again this weekend? Tuesday yes. morning, I'm seeing it again. Where at? Uh, the IMAX. Uh, Waterloo? Yes. How do you manage that? I yeah. booked a ticket. I when? It's booked out till August now. Uh, I think it was the day after they went on sale. Oh, see, that's clever. I think you can still, <laughs> you get, when I think you can still get into the Science Museum. Yeah, that's why I'm going to see it. It is worth mentioning, I think, that if you are going to see it and you can see it in IMAX, for God's sake, do. Yes. So much of it is shot in yeah. IMAX. And we were talking about this a little bit in the office. I mean, give me a 3D film, whatever. To see something shot in full IMAX, there's just nothing like it. But make sure you get there early and, for God's sake, get decent seats. Yes. Don't be sad off the side. And, yeah, to be clear, the decent seats in the IMAX are as far back as possible. In the middle. Far back. Yeah. I would almost go side before going forward. Five rows from the back, I think, is optimal. Mm. Okay, but you want to go back, back, back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Forward, bad, back, good. We had really good seats today for the screen. Yes, we did. But then we did get there quite early. Quite early, about an hour and a half before the screen doors even opened, (laughs) I think. (laughs) And we were fourth in line. So that that wasn't too bad. And that is it for this week. Next week, we're going to be back, back, back with more film-related fun, including reviews of The Lorax and Searching for Sugar Man. And we'll have more special guests in the pod booth. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. Goodbye from... Ooh, who's next Goodbye. me and Ollie are identical voice twins so it doesn't really matter can I just say for the record for this podcast anything that was intelligent funny or thoughtful that was me everything else was on I'm not so sure that's the way it works out uh, but goodbye from James bye and goodbye from Molly. goodbye and goodbye from me goodbye